All right. So, um, yeah, so we have this theme of fruitful joy. So here's kind of, I'm going to be doing five messages, one tonight, uh, tomorrow morning, uh, tomorrow, like before dinner, and then uh, tomorrow evening and Sunday. Okay. So, so this, this idea of joy is going to be kind of flowing throughout. I've kind of connected that theme to kind of all that's kind of coming and uh, with, with this larger theme of fruitful joy. So let me kind of give, a, give you the flow so you get the big picture of how to hear it and, and how to make the connections uh, between the messages. Okay, so, so today the title of the message is the relationship between God's glory and our joy. Um, and kind of what we'll see, it's kind of like a foundational message that's going to help set up the rest of the messages in some ways. Uh, of how joy is essential to Christian living, all right? And uh, it's kind of a little bit more theological, maybe, you could say, but hopefully you'll find it uh, helpful, okay? Uh, tomorrow we'll, we'll, we'll talk a common story that we know, Jesus in the storm, but we'll talk about hidden love and how joy is deepened in trials. And so maybe that may be relevant, especially as we come out of a, a hard year, hard season, how the Lord is at work through those things. And then the next one's actually a seminar, uh, but I try to fit it in the flow still. <laughs> so the seminar is actually, um, Pastor Sai asked me to talk about the South Asian community. I'm from an Indian background. And so I know there's a large South Asian Indian community actually in the Bay Area. I've done a little bit of study too, kind of some demographics. I'm going to share some of that, uh, just a cultural understanding of South Asians. And then what are some steps towards ministering? Uh, so it's a little bit more practical, but basically joy overflows in gospel witness, but two specific people. And then... Uh, Tomorrow night, we'll talk about practical sanctification. Just, okay, uh, if, if joy is this thing that we have in Christ, how does it produce holiness in us? What does that look like on a very nitty-gritty, practical level? And so we'll talk about how joy is the root of holiness. And then lastly, uh, Sunday morning, uh, as we worship on the Lord's Day, uh, I'll do, we'll do a message from Joshua kind of on this idea of witnessing um, and how jo joy overflows in gospel witness. So basically that... That all that we've learned, you know, basically it's kind of like starting with the essence of joy, trials, it produces a sort of holiness in us, but that holiness overflows in gospel witness. So it's kind of the, the flow, if that makes sense. So, all right, y'all ready? Yeah. All right. So that's kind of the roadmap. And, um, but why don't we pray? Uh, I know we prayed earlier, but why don't we pray one more time? And I'm going to ask you all just to pray. I'll just give you guys a moment. And let's just ask God, uh, you know, Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to come and to minister to us and to speak to us, to change our lives. And so would you take a moment just to pray together? And uh, let's just invite God by his Spirit to come and to work. And then after a minute or so, I'll pray for us. Father, we, uh, we do come to you, God, as your children. And we come hungry. We come longing, Lord, uh, for, for more of you. Uh, our hearts, our souls are parched from things of the world, God, uh, unsatisfied with what uh, our flesh can give us, with what the world can give us, but Lord, you, you alone satisfy, and so we come with eager longing and expectation that you would give, because uh, your word says that when um, you know, your children ask you for bread, you don't give them a stone, uh, but you give good things to those who ask. So Father, now we ask, we ask that you come and bless, that you would come and send uh, your, your word to us, that you would send your spirit, and that you would uh, show us the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, and that you would fill our hearts with joy, and that you would then transform us, transform this church, revive this church, uh, so that it would be a blessing to others, God. So we pray that you would meet us at this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Alright, so the title of this first message is The Relationship Between God's Glory and Our Joy. And I'm going to, through this, kind of start with a little bit of my own story and testimony to kind of weave in so you get to know a little bit about myself, but it kind of relates even to this message. You know, I grew up in a, in a Christian home. Uh, I came to Saving Faith later in my life uh, in, in high school. Uh, and so early on, I was just in love with the Lord. I had been saved from a life of sin, and, uh, and I was... Uh, in love with the Lord and His gospel, what He had done in my life. Uh, but one of the things I, I recognized early on is, is, is that the Lord is worthy of uh, me being sold out for Him. That was the only worthy response to the gospels that I was sold out. And so that, that was what I recognized was true, true to be a worthy response to the gospel. But many years of walking with Him, and maybe you can relate to this, uh, I, I seemed to have something that felt at odds in my Christian life. Now, two desires that seem to be at odds. And the two desires of this is that I deeply long to be happy. Uh, and not, not just in sinful pleasures, although that was there, but I, I long to be sincerely happy and joyful in Christ. But I knew that at the same time, there was another desire and another uh, thing that I knew that Christ demanded that I give up everything to follow Him. And here's the thing is I couldn't reconcile how those two things fit together. Because uh, either I was extremely selfish for wanting to find joy, uh, but at the same time I was obligated to serve God, and often it felt like I had to do that joylessly. And so if I could restate the tension that I felt into kind of a theological question, it's this question of what is the relationship between uh, living for God's glory and our joy? And then the question is, are those two things at odds with each other? Uh, what is the relationship to those things? I, you know, the longer I, I live the Christian life, though, and maybe you, you feel this too, is that you feel like you have to choose one or the other, right? And if, and if you're a Christian that takes the Bible seriously, if you read the Bible, you, you see that Jesus has called us to a radical life of obedience. And you almost feel like you have to choose to live for God's glory at the expense of your joy. And if I could kind of show the, the tension further in, in Scripture, the greatest commandment comes from Jesus himself. He tells us what's the greatest, most important thing to do, right? So Matthew 22, verse 36 to 40, it says this. It says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Right? So it seems like we can't have anything clearer than this, right, from Jesus. It seems like Jesus makes the Christian life simple. Uh, the, the, the greatest command is to, is to love the Lord your God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And so if we're to apply that question I asked earlier, you know, which do I choose, the greater of glorifying God or, or my joy, then it seems that Jesus has certainly made the choice for us, right? Yet that the highest goal of Christian life is to love God, to, to glorify Him, uh, to love others. And if you experience joy in that obedience, it's kind of like having icing on the cake, right? It's, it's nice to have. It's nice when it's there, but it's icing. You don't need cake with icing. It's extra, right? It's not necessary by any means, all right? And so that's, uh, th this, is, this is how I struggle with Christian life. After many years of following Jesus, I was, I was sitting in this place uh, about eight years ago, actually. I was, I was in this place. I was serving as a, actually as a pastor. In that time, I was serving several young adults, young families at that time, and we were all in this place of burden, right? Of like, we're trying to live for Jesus. We know we're supposed to. Uh, and yet our, our soul feels like, uh, you know, there's a brother actually at Perimeter who had preached a sermon. He said that, that he had this mantra. He says, the cross is rough, get tough, and pick it up, 
right? And so that was their mantra. That's how they lived their Christian life. The, the cross is rough, get tough, pick it up. And that, and that, that was how they got through Christian life. And, and that was kind of like my internal mantra without even saying it. Necessarily that same mantra that I was like, that's true, right? That's, that's what you're supposed to do. And yet, this is my question that I didn't often tell the people, even though I'm a pastor, I was like, I'm not sure how much longer I could do this. I don't know if I could do this much longer. And so I was in this kind of existential crisis as a Christian. And about eight years ago, I got to this point. I was in the summer, and it was at the end of, end of this ministry year, and I began to seek the Lord in a deeper way. And I said, Lord, uh, I, I just want to restore my first love. You know, it's been years since I'd given my life to Christ, and I just want to restore my first love with you. I, I, I need answers to, to this, this struggle that I have. And so uh, that summer I went on prayer walks and retreats and uh, just, just asking God uh, for, for help. I was journaling and I was just like, Lord, I need help. I need wisdom. I need grace. I need a breakthrough. I need something. And so I'm going through the summer just trying to seek the Lord. And uh, by the end of the summer, I picked up a book called Desiring God by John Piper. Maybe you're familiar with it. I remember I tried to pick it up early in college. It didn't make sense to me, so I put it down. But, maybe, you know, the Lord has his timing. But that, that time in my life, I picked it up again. I, was, I remember I was by a lake. I was at a retreat, and I just started reading. And as I started to read, the Spirit, I felt like, worked through that book in such a way to give such piercing insight and clarity and scriptural authority to the very questions I was asking in my life. And so, uh, you know, there's several things I want to expand on, and I'll get to it more as the message gets on. But I want to... Uh, I think what, what Piper was getting at in that book was the answer to that essential tension that I was wrestling with. What is the relationship between God's glory and our joy? And so I'm going to read uh, a quote from the book, from, from the beginning of the book. He actually starts with the Westminster Catechism, actually, which, if, if you know the Presbyterian Church of America, that, you know, the denomination that this church is part of, uh, you know, we, we adhere to, to that confession as a faithful expression of biblical truth. Okay, and so, so he starts there. And so this is, this is how he starts. He says, The old tradition says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. All right, and, so, and, then, and then what Piper starts to deal with, he starts to deal with some of the ambiguities of that statement. And he, and he asks this question, Well, sometimes you glorify God and sometimes you enjoy Him. Sometimes He gets glory and sometimes you get joy. And is a very ambiguous word. Just how do these two things relate to each other? And he goes on to say, he says, Evidently, the old theologians didn't think they were talking about two things. <laughs> it says they said chief end, not chief ends. Glorifying God, enjoying Him, we're, not one end, uh, we're, we're one end in their minds, not two. How can that be? Now, that's what this book is about. And then he goes on to say this. So the overriding concern of this book is that in all of life, God be glorified in the way that he himself appointed. To that end, this book aims to persuade you that the chief end of man is to glorify God. And this is the, the, the key, uh, by enjoying him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God. How? By, by enjoying him forever. You know, here is the key insight that came for me that had to be totally reshaped in my mind that I assumed that the desire to be happy, the desire uh, that I longed for for joy was this sinful desire, or at the very least a lesser desire that had to be crucified in the life of obedience. But no, the desire to be, to be happy was, was, was this innate, in unbreakable law of the human constitution. It's, it's what it is to be human. And the issue was not that I was making a God out of my happiness, but whatever made me happy was my God. 
And so the liberating truth of the scripture was it was actually marrying my heart's innate craving for joy with God's demand that I love and glorify Him. Therefore, my joy in God is what essentially glorified Him. I no longer needed to choose between glorifying God and my longing for highest pleasure. Uh, that was actually a false choice. The choice was actually what would I find my greatest pleasure in. Either it be in the infinitely and ultimately uh, infinitely satisfying God of the universe or in something else. And whatever I would choose to be most happy in is what I would most then glorify. And so let me, let me go back now to the great commandment. The greatest commandment. So how does the scripture now, uh, yeah, how, how, how do we read the scripture in, in, in light of this new understanding of the relationship between glorifying God and our enjoyment of Him? Okay, so let's look at Matthew twenty two thirty seven 37 again. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And so, so what, when I had read the scripture all of my life, I had missed what, what you could consider a nuanced definition of the word love. Or if you really think about it, the word love is actually complex in, in how we can define it. Uh, let, me, let me illustrate it in, in two ways here. Right, here's two sentences I could give you with the word love. Right? I could say, I love ice cream. Right? I could say, I love it. I want it. Right? Or, you know, a mom could, you know, a brother could be talking to another brother. Mom told me I need to love my annoying brother. Right? It's the word love, right? Two different things. Right, what's the difference here? Right? Jonathan Edwards, who's considered one of America's greatest theologians, one of history's greatest theologians, whom you know, Piper credits much of his influence to Edwards. And uh, you know, Edwards traces back to the Reformers, to Augustine, and ultimately back to, to the Scripture. But Edwards actually broke down the definition of love into kind of these two main components. What, uh, in layman's terms, we'll call it the, de the delighting love and, uh, and a benevolent love. A delighting love could be defined like this. A love compelled... By, the, by delight in the beauty of another, right? It's like loving ice cream, right? You, you love it. There's something beautiful about it that you crave it, you want it. It's a delighting love. A benevolent love is a love compelled to advance the good of another, right. like loving your annoying brother, right? It's a benevolent love. And so here's the question. We go back to Matthew 22:37. We're told to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What kind of love is it? Are you to love the Lord your God like you delight in ice cream? Or do you, are you to love God with benevolence like he's an annoying older brother? Now, I don't, I don't want to oversimplify it, right? Edwards doesn't either. There's certainly a type of benevolent love that we show towards God, that we, we are compelled to, to want to advance and promote the honor and the fame and the name of God in Christ. There is a desire that we, yes, we have in that, but at the root of that love, there the, the, the command to love God, there is a root that must delight in Him, that finds Christ ravishing and beautiful. And I, I don't know if I, sadly, all of my life when I read the Great Commandment, I don't know if I had read the Great Commandment in that way. All of my life I'd read it as a burden to be carried. You know, I kind of read it like this, you know, love the Lord, Tony, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, body, and strength. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. Just do it, right? Uh, but, but everything in my Christian life started to change, and I felt like almost, almost like I was born again again when I could understand this command, not as a burden to carry, but as an invitation to joy. Now I, I can read it like this. I could read it like, like the Lord saying, Tony, love, enjoy, delight. 
in your infinitely beautiful and satisfying God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And Tony, place, place no boundaries on your appetite. Indulge on me because I'm infinitely satisfying. And as you, as you enjoy me, that, that joy will overflow in such a way that it will, uh, you'll have a passion to make, to make me known, a passion to honor me, and a passion to share me in love with your neighbor. And, and I want to ask, you know, how do you read the command? How do you read, really, in some sense? How do you read all the scripture? Uh, I hope this has been maybe a helpful foundation to introduce, you know, what's, what's been, you know, my own journey uh, in my own life, but, but hopefully for, for us here that, that we would ask ourselves, what sort of eyes do we see God with? What sort of eyes do we, do we see Christ? What sort of eyes do we live the Christian life? And so I want to I expand on this now. I, having laid this foundation, now I want to more systematically t- jump into kind of what four truths uh, that this foundational truth, this foundational truth is true, that we essentially glorify God by enjoying Him forever, uh, then there's, there's, there's some implications that come out of that uh, that I want to share about. Again, these, these insights, so many of them I'm indebted to, to Piper and Edwards for. But what are four things that we can see more clearly now? What we can see more clearly is that we can see more clearly what we call the, the, the self-sufficiency of God. Uh, in layman's terms, we say God is not a vacuum but a fountain. That's the first thing we'll look at. Second thing that we see more clearly is we see, we see more clearly the glory of God. That God's glory is synonymous with God's beauty. Third thing that we can more clearly see the call to joy. That joy being essential to glorifying God is both devastating and liberating. And the last thing we'll see is that more, we can see more clearly the call to love others. That loving others sacrificially is sustained by the power of joy in God. All right, so we'll get into these. So glorifying God by enjoying Him. What does it help us to see more clearly? Uh, we can see more clearly the self-sufficiency of God, that God is not a vacuum, but a fountain. And one of the most important things that changed for me in grasping this relationship between God's glory and our joy was that my view of God Himself changed. You know, previously, yes, I saw God as God that was loving and forgiving. I, I knew that in the gospel that God forgave my sin, uh, that, that, that he, he, was, he was a God that, that had cleansed me of my sin, yes, and I loved Him for it. But at the same time, I knew that God was a God that, that demanded everything. That He was exacting, in a sense. And I, and I lived in this tension of these two things. In some ways, I felt released of the burden of my sin. And I loved God for that truth. But at the same time, I felt the burden that He demanded a life of obedience. And so I simultaneously felt relief and burden. Right? I kind of felt those things uh, both together. But, but what Jonathan Edwards, especially, especially in his, his, his treatise, the, the End for Which God Created the World, helped me to see more clearly was this doctrine of the self-sufficiency of God. One of the most illuminating scriptures for this is in Acts 17, 24 to 25. Uh, look at this verse. It says, the, the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all of mankind breath and life and everything. The scripture reminds us here that the scripture shows us that God has no needs. God God didn't create the world to gain our worship uh, like some sort of sucking vacuum cleaner. To complete some sort of need or deficiency or unhappiness that he had. It said the eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has been infinitely happy in Himself and in one another for all of eternity. 
And so the act of creation was not a power grab of an unsatisfied God. It was the overflow of a triune God trying to display His beauty and His worth and His happiness to a creation. So what this, what this changed for me practically, once you grasp this truth, is I stopped walking around the Christian life with this posture. I don't know if you, you, you've done My posture of Christian life, I'm just like pointing the arrow up to God. I got to give, give it to Him, right? I got to give Him glory. And yet, yet what, what started to happen is I started to live unburdened and free and joyful because I realized that the, the posture of Christian life is, is this. It's, it's receiving. Is that He's pouring. He's a fountain that pours, not a vacuum that sucks. He has no needs. He gives in everything. And so from my conversion to my sanctification to all of glory in eternity, it's a, it's, a, it's a God that's giving and pouring. And I'm in this position of receiving every moment of my life, even in all my acts of obedience. It's a receiving from Him. And it was this moment by moment receiving of God's grace and love. And not my paying Him back is what gave Him glory. Because... Because it displayed him as the giver and me as the receiver. And it's the giver that gets the glory. He has the resources. I have the need. He gets the glory. I get the joy. It's the giver who gets the glory. Amen? And so what we see more clearly is the self-sufficiency of God. God is absolutely self-sufficient. The second truth that we get to see more clearly is that we get to see the, the glory of God. That God's glory is synonymous with his beauty. Nice... Sure, your experience with the word glory. You know, growing up, you know, in the church, I, you know, you hear the word glory, and uh, you know, I didn't even know what it meant to, to be honest. You hear the word glory, it's like we need to glorify God, and I'm like, what does that even mean? It sounds just like a fluff word that Christians kind of throw around to sound kind of serious, uh, you know, about their faith. But it just sounded like a very stuffy, serious, stoic word that had no real essential meaning to my Christian life. But the more that I read Piper and Edwards. Uh, my whole conception of the word glory transformed. And the best synonym, uh, I think, for the word glory is this word, the, the, the idea that God is beautiful. God is glorious. God is beautiful. And so, so you go back with that framework, you reread the scripture, and the scripture comes alive. You, you see new things that you hadn't seen before. And so you, you go back to Isaiah in the throne room of God. Where the glory of God is on display and the angels, the cherubim are calling to one another. In Isaiah 6, 3 it says, And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. It's full of His beauty. And the reason the angels are crying out in worship is they saw and they savored, savored the glory, the beauty of God. And it filled the earth. And that's what we're supposed to do, actually, in corporate worship, right? When we're singing, we're singing the glory, the beauty of God. We're singing it to each other. The beauties of God in Christ and the gospel. And so that was a shift for me. It was a shift that to see that, that, that when, when God wants to display His glory, when, when it says that God is jealous for His glory, you know, that always sounded like an awful, selfish truth. But it, it changed to something being loving and amazing. Because it meant that, that God being jealous for His glory and for the display of His glory is actually the most loving thing that He can do. Because He is infinitely committed to giving us a sight of what is infinitely beautiful and satisfying, which is Himself. And so, so something we can see more clearly is, is, is that God's glory is synonymous with His beauty. 
but the third thing that we can then see is that we more clearly see the call to joy it, it, being is, is that joy being essential to glorifying God is both devastating and liberating. So here's a question you might, might, might wonder. How, how is it that the truth that joy being essential to glorifying God is devastating? How is it possible? <clears throat> well, I think it's devastating because this truth then gives us more clarity of what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean that you, you and I are truly saved? And first of all, what that means is that saving faith cannot merely be intellectual agreement with the truths of the gospel. Right? Uh, scripture reminds us that even demons believe in God. But they're not obviously saved. Right? And so believing right things about God is, is not the essence of a born-again heart. It is, it is believing and cherishing those things that you believe about God and Christ. There needs to be a cherishing of those truths, not just a believing of them. Also, the, the, the second thing is that saving faith cannot merely be doing right things in outward actions. Scripture reminds us that on Judgment Day, Jesus will say on Judgment Day, or some people will say to Jesus on Judgment Day, Lord, Lord, did we not do? Did we not do mighty works and miracles and cast out demons in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Because you never knew me. You never cherished me. You did things for me. Uh, but you never cherished me. You never really wanted me. So here's the devastating truth is that real, genuine, profound Jesus, joy in Jesus cannot be icing on the cake of commitment, of Christian commitment. It is the essence of the cake. If we don't have real, profound joy in Jesus, we don't have Jesus. And that is something that's devastating because I cannot by my own intellect or by my own willpower make myself a Christian. That is a miracle that God does by His Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. But here's, here's the other truth is, is moment by moment in the life of faith. And so what, that, what this truth then engenders in the Christian life is a sort of a sense of humility and helplessness that we throw ourselves on the grace of God that I cannot live the Christian life in a pleasing way that honors you, that enjoys you, unless your Holy Spirit enables me to see the glory of Christ and to savor it. And the Christian life becomes now a, a work of grace through and through, a work of the Spirit from beginning to end. Now here's a caveat, though. We do have to say this, that, that in, in the life of the genuine believer, we will, we will go up and down in our affections for Christ. We will go through dry periods. We battle with indwelling sin within us. We have fallen bodies. We live in a fallen world. <coughs> and so... We have to hear this, that as genuine believers, we live in this tension of resting in Christ and fighting for joy in Christ. We've got to live in that tension. What I mean by that is that uh, you know, we, we have to have this foundational truth of, of the centrality of Jesus in the gospel. right? That, that we rest not in what we can do, uh, but in what Christ has done for us. That we are justified in Jesus Christ, irrespective of our measure of joy in Him. Right? Uh, and, and understanding that truth of, of justification by faith alone was another kind of born again again experience in my own Christian life that I needed to, to grasp that first before I could even wrestle with these truths of uh, uh, that, that the essence of, of, of joy in Jesus being essential to glorifying God. Here, here's the reality is that, that it's going to be impossible to, to, to fight for joy in Jesus 
unless you're profoundly resting in Jesus first. Uh, if, if you're not profoundly resting in, in, in Christ and his righteousness for you, uh, you will always be guilt, rid of guilt and shame in the fight for joy in Jesus. And so there's a foundation of rest that we have in our justification. But on that foundation of rest, there's still a fight. There's still a fight. There's a fight for joy in Jesus. And again, that's devastating. That's devastating because in one sense, it means that the Christian sanctification is no longer finally in my willpower. But it is at its, at its root, at its bottom, it's a miracle of grace. Dependent on the Spirit opening my eyes to see the glory of Christ. And again, that's devastating to human pride. Right? It's devastating to human pride to the person that says, I can do this. But, 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 but the, the liberation is on the other side of that, right? Because if you live a good life and you're discouraged and it's like, I can't do this. And you know you can't. And you rely on God. What does the scripture say? It says, God opposes the problem, but what? He, he gives grace to humble. And God loves to give grace to those that say, God, I can't. Show me Christ. Show me, show me your son. And God, by his spirit, loves to pour himself and say, and show you the deal of the Son. And you know the work of grace in our hearts. So there's something liberating about how, what that does to Christian life. But here, here's the other part of the liberation is something I've already referred to is that the Bible, again, is marrying our, our innate longing for joy with God's rightful demand that we glorify Him. Look at this quote from Jonathan Edwards. It says that the change that takes place in the man when he's converted and sanctified is not. It's not that his love for happiness is diminished, but he gives him a happiness that before he had not, namely in God. But he does not at the same time take away any of his love for happiness. Right, so becoming a Christian, what he's saying is that becoming a Christian is not now that you learn to now deny pleasure, but he's saying that you have now received a new pleasure in God that you had not before. That's, that's what it means that you became a Christian. And that that pleasure is in God. Now, something to clarify here that sometimes people struggle with if you listen to John Piper or read him, uh, is it's how happiness and joy seems to only be in God, and it's, it's in nothing else. And so it seems to be a weaker doctrine in terms of its doctrine of creation and our doctrine of humanity. Uh, so the question is, you know, can we not delight in creation itself? Right, I'm not right around Lake Tahoe. <laughs> Can I not delight when I look outside and look at these beautiful mountains and this lake? And um, you know, you know, even John Piper in a sermon seemed to disparage seashells once. And you know, what if you like seashells? You know, uh, you know, uh, what if you enjoy your family, your work, relationships? And I think the answer that we see in, in scriptures that yes, we, we do delight in those things. They are good gifts from God. And even in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to have an embodied experience. Or we're going to be physical, and we're going to experience the physical creation. We're going to enjoy all those things, and they're going to give us delight in God, actually. They're going to increase our joy because they're going to be good gifts from a good God. And they display more of who God is, even. And so there is a true delight in the gifts of God. But here, here's the thing that Piper and I think really Scripture is careful to guard us against, and we'd be wise to heed these warnings is that we realize that gifts can turn into gods very easily in our Christian life. We must always evaluate this question, is God my greatest good? Especially, we are tested when, when 
when, when those good gifts are taken away, or when in the life of obedience to Christ, he calls us to surrender those things. Can we say that Christ is enough, just as we say? So, so having said that, uh, I do want to confirm that is his pleasure the essence of sanctification? Uh, we want to see the scripture speak that way. We, as we look at Hebrews 11, uh, 24 to 26, we see that this is how Moses fought temptation of sin in, in Egypt. Since by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy what the, the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the approach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to his reward. And I think there's, there's a dangerous ethic that we sometimes talk, think about in the Christian life. The most spiritual Christians are the ones who love God apart from any joy. Right? So, so, so talking about joy in Christ, is, it's kind of like for those weak, immature Christians who have no commitment to Christ. But that is not an ethic found in the Bible. Where God states the past, that is not uh, an ethic that, that the Scripture speaks about, because that is an ethic that, that glorifies the willpower of the person, not the compelling beauty and worth of Christ. In the way that Moses and godly saints of the past pursued holiness was not by making self-denial end in itself, but self-denial was a means to an end of a greater pleasure found in Christ. He was looking forward to his reward, to a greater pleasure and the fleeting pleasures of Egypt. So, so we see that the essence, uh, the, the joy being essential to glorify God is both devastating and liberating. But, but here, here's a here's a last question I want to deal with. And the major question that people have in this theology, this pursuit of joy, is: well, what about loving other people? You know, it would seem that this sort of ethic would create a type of selfishness, a lack of love for people. And so, is that true? And so that leads to this last, last shift that I was, in, you know, we we're able to more clearly see. Is that we're more, we're more clearly able to see the call to love others. Loving others sacrificially sustained for the power of joy in God. You know, probably this question, actually, for me at least, uh, was the one that, that, you know, was probably the reason that I most existentially was able to embrace these truths that, you know, John Piper calls in Christian hedonism. And the reason was this, that I was a Christian, again, I was a pastor, I was working hard to love people, to try to serve people, I was trying to share Christ and, 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 and bring people to Christ, but as the years went on, the, the more and more I found myself dry and just, just serving on, on, on empty, and yet I was still just as committed to ministry in a sense, and yet I had to ask myself, is this how it's supposed to be? Is this how ministry is supposed to be? And I just felt like it wasn't sustainable, it didn't feel effective, it didn't feel right, and, and I just felt like a hypocrite. That I was compelling people to follow a Jesus I myself was not finding compelling. And, and so the text that, 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 that was able to help me to see the relationship between our joy in Jesus and how it relates to loving other people uh, was this text in 2 Corinthians 8, 1-2. The context here is that Paul is speaking to, uh, to, to the Corinthians about, he's speaking about the Macedonian church. And the Macedonian church is a church that was giving sacrificial, so they're, they're loving they're, lo they're loving the poor brothers in Judea by their, by their love offering that they gave. But I, I want us to look here how Paul argues how they gave that sacrificial love. Okay, so, so, so look at uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. And so the grace of God came. The grace of God has been given amongst the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy 
and their, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Okay, so, so let's analyze or examine this verse here. We see the fruit. What is the fruit of this Macedonian church? They, they could be called a loving church. The fruit is seen in that they, they gave sacrificially of their offering and generous giving. And yet here's the question. What is the root of their love that they were able to give sacrificially? First of all, it's grace. Grace came upon this church. But this grace produced in them an abundance of joy. And this joy overflowed. It's, it's spilled over in this love of generous giving. And here's the thing. It came even in the midst of afflictions that they had, even their own poverty. And so this joy that they had in Jesus was so powerful, so profound, that, that it still produced this love for other people. And then here's, here's the thing, is that the reason they can love so sacrificially is because they are so satisfied in Jesus that they don't need any earthly, worldly goods anymore. They don't, they're not troubled ultimately by worldly suffering and hardships and persecutions because Jesus is enough for them. And the power of his satisfaction, they can now overflow to others. And the result is that the power of joy spills over and becomes this radical power for sacrificial love. And I love what uh, David Livingstone, uh, the missionary to Africa, uh, what he said. He suffered profoundly for Jesus in his life. Uh, and then he said this at the end of his life. He says, I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. How, how can he say that? After all that he'd suffered and endured, I think it's because he saw all the more clearly what he had gained in the cross as he served. I think there's a fear that we have sometimes that, you know, if we talk too much about joy in Jesus, you know, we're going to hamper people. We're going to make them selfish. You know, they're not going to love, love sacrificially. But I think what the scripture proves and what, what, what history proves, the godly saints of the past who laid down their lives for the sake of the gospel, who gave up everything, who gave up even their own lives. And I think what, what, what I've been able to see even over the last eight years of my life is that. You know, we can't create a loving people, in a sense, uh, by just demanding that they love. But if, if we do, do, an, do an end run around this profound joy in Jesus, what we will create is, is yes, in some ways a loving people, but a very hardworking, sacrificial people that will eventually crash and burn. They'll eventually get there, become legalistic, will walk away. But if we call people to this profound joy in Jesus, it's not going to diminish love for others, it's going to deepen their love for others. If we call people to this profound, abiding joy in Jesus, we will not pamper people, we will prepare them to suffer. And that's the type of people that God calls us to be. So there's a people of radical love for this world, and it comes from the roots of profound joy in Jesus. Joy is not antithetical to love. It is, it is the solution of producing it. So we conclude, you know, I'll just ask a simple application, but I think there's just one simple application that I'd ask to this church, to revive church. It's a simple question. This church, do you have a thirst for God? Do you have a thirst for Him? Do you have a hunger for the living God? What Scripture says is that God is the one who satisfies all of your longings and desires. Everything you have ever wanted in your life is found in Him and it's found in Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ invites you to eat and drink and have no boundaries on your appetite. 
have no boundaries on your longing for joy and happiness. He can satisfy me. And you remember this as well. In the midst of this call to thirst, remember the gospel. Remember the good news of Jesus. Because I know part of why we come to retreat is because we, we come here not as ones that have hungered and thirsted for him. We've come and we, we, we've been people that have eaten too far too long at the table of sin, the table of this world. We feast on things of this earth. But, but the Lord Jesus still lays out a table of his grace, paid for by the blood of his son. He says, come, eat, drink, free of cost, paid for by the blood of my son. Satisfy yourself on my, on my son. So church, eat. All this retreat is what we will just eat or drink, we'll be satisfied when we eat. If we eat, if we drink, rivers of living water will flow from our hearts. To feed a city, to feed a people, to feed the nations. We'll come from this trip. We would just simply eat and drink. Be full in Christ. Amen? Amen. 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 Amen.